turn with me to John chapter 15. We began studying this passage, this section, which we entitled The Enhanced Paradigm of Viability. Jesus presented to us the paradigm of viability. I am the true vine. My father is the true husbandman who tends the branches. You are the branches. And just as a branch cannot bear fruit except it abides in the vine, so you cannot bear fruit except you abide in me. My Father wants to prune you so that you can bear more fruit. And then Jesus said, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so God's design is that we would not simply bear fruit, but that we would bear more fruit, and ultimately much fruit, that our lives would so reveal the life of Jesus Christ, demonstrate who He is, display His character and His likeness. I was inquiring about one of our Egyptian missionaries who is in a very difficult part of the Middle East. It's an area that's dangerous. It's an area that is very spiritually dark. But I was inquiring about her and her status of ministry among the people with whom she is working. I was asking for prayer requests and she came back with this prayer request. Pray that we will be more like Jesus. For we have found that among these people, the more that we are able to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, even though they are difficult people to minister among, this is what they respond to. Seeing the character of Jesus Christ in us. This is what the Father wants to produce in us, the likeness of the Son, the fruit is the manifestation of the life that is in the vine. The branch does not have life in itself, it must abide in the vine. But when it does, the life that is in the vine will be visibly and tangibly on display. Now, as you and I come to verse 9, verses 9 through 17, we have entitled those the enhanced paradigm of viability because Jesus will present to us this same understanding about viability, but looking at it in different ways. We looked at those different ways in our previous study. Now we're going to come back to 
the primary paradigm that Jesus is presenting to us that helps to illustrate what it means to remain in Him and what should be the result, the fruit of remaining in Him. And this is the love-obedience paradigm. So look at these verses with me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. As we look at this passage, we can see how Jesus expands from statement or aspect to the next. He says, remain in my love. And then he declared, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And then he expanded on his commands. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he went on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now there are some very significant and defining statements that Jesus makes here. They are paradigm statements. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Another one, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. That is our paradigm, the paradigm that he gives us for our own obedience and remaining in his commands. And then he said, love each other as I have loved you. Now when we read those words as, or just as, we understand those to be comparison words, paradigm words. They are presenting something in parallel. What Jesus is instructing us and what Jesus himself has shown us by his example. Never does he tell us, as disciples, to do something that he has not already done and displayed. You and I might say that Jesus lived as a disciple himself, a disciple of the Father. He did what the Father told him to do. He lived out the life of the Father so that you and I would understand the Father and how to live in relationship with the Father. Now, obviously, it's much deeper than that because he and the Father are one. 
They share the same essence, nature, character, qualities. But in his role of representing the Father here on earth, and in his form as the Word made flesh, Jesus lived out what he was telling his disciples they should do. Love each other as I have loved you. But we also see some condition statements here, don't we? That word if, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. Now there is a lot of spiritual truth in these few verses. And we want to dig into them and understand some of the depth that Jesus is imparting to His disciples. Remember one of the things that we have said previously about this time. Jesus is exclusively with his disciples on the evening before his betrayal. He has taken them aside privately. He has washed their feet. He has shared his last supper or Passover with them. And yet, it has not only been an ordinary Passover, it has been the end of the Old Covenant and the initiation of the New. He has given them a new commandment. And He has been teaching them. And the teaching that He gives them is the foundation for the apostolic writings that His apostles will author as they instruct the churches concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and what it means to follow in His way, to live the life of Christ, to know the fullness of His love, to have His Spirit, to live out His life through the Spirit. So we want to dig deeply into these passages. Let's begin with this first statement that Jesus made. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now this is an infinite benchmark. And we are going to look at it a little more closely. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Let's think about the identity of Jesus for a moment. He was the Son of God. That means that he was equal with God. Even his opponents, the Jews, understood that truth when he declared 
that God was his father. Sharing the same essence, nature, position, equality. But not only was Jesus the Son of God, he was also the Son of Man. We see him as the sovereign Lord with authority over nature, disease, and death. Remember in the midst of the storm, when the disciples feared for their lives, and in alarm they said to Jesus, don't you care that we die? Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. Immediately it was calm, and immediately they were at their destination, and they marveled and said, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, he's the sovereign Lord. He has authority over his creation. He had authority over every disease. We read that he went about doing good, healing every disease, and casting out demons. We saw him standing before the grave of Lazarus and declaring, I am the resurrection and the life. Instructing that the stone be rolled away over Martha's protest that he's been dead four days. His body is decomposing. And Jesus declaring, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. A resurrected, living man. He is the Sovereign Lord. But we also see Him as the Substitute Lord. He was the Lord who knelt down to wash His disciples' feet. He was the Lord who was infinitely holy, and yet He subjected Himself to obeying the law in every respect. He did not live above it. He lived subject to being obedient to it. And in our place, He sacrificed Himself for our sin. He's the Sovereign Lord. He's also the Substitute Lord. As the Son, He was equal with the Father. But here on earth, as the Father's only true authorized representative, the Father was his exacting standard for everything that he said and did. I don't say anything except what the Father tells me to say and how he tells me to say it. I don't do anything except what the Father has told me to do. My Father is at work to this very day. I watch Him, and I do what He shows me to do. Now Jesus said to His disciples, As the Father has loved me, 
so have I loved you. And he goes on to tell them that if they obey him, they will remain in his love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now these verses raise a number of interesting questions, such as, how does the Father love Jesus as the Father has loved me? So have I loved you. What does it mean to remain in his love? And since if is a conditional word, is obedience the basis for being loved by Jesus? It seems to be that is what he is saying. Furthermore, was it the basis for the Father loving Jesus? and Jesus himself remaining in the Father's love. Is my salvation and spiritual security dependent on my obedience? Remember that little thing that some of us would do as kids, if we had a crush on someone, we'd pick a daisy and we pluck off the petals. She loves me. She loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And see where we ended up at the end? Am I in a position of, he loves me, he loves me not, according to the state of the impeccability or the loss thereof of my obedience? He loves me if I'm obedient. If I'm disobedient, he loves me not. In presenting himself as the true shepherd who lays down his life, John chapter 10, Jesus said, The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. Would Jesus have no longer been loved by the Father if, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, he had been unable to continue with the divine plan of his sacrificial death? Or at any point thereafter, such as when he was beaten or when he got to the cross or even after he was nailed to the cross in the midst of his suffering? This statement, the reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. With a Father have withdrawn his love for Jesus if Jesus had aborted that plan of laying down his life? What is Jesus saying to us when he declares, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you? 
This is a unique statement. We don't find Jesus making many statements like this. When we study this statement, most commentators mention it, but do not expand on it. And yet it's very obviously significant because Jesus wants his disciples to understand the nature of his love before he continues with his love-obedience paradigm. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In his apostolic letter, at which love was the heart of his writing. The Apostle John wrote these words, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. You and I need to understand God, and we must understand God, if we are going to understand Him accurately. Not merely by his actions, but by his nature. Many people dispute or discredit something that the Bible reveals about God. And this is usually the basis. They look at something. They look at an action of God. Very especially, they will look at something in the Old Testament and then dispute the character of God because of that action. But we don't just simply look at the action. We must understand the nature of God. God is, John said, meaning that God's very nature is love. Just as in his nature, he is fundamentally and absolutely holy, faithful, righteous, and good. Remember when God appeared to Moses in the form of the bush that was burning yet not consumed. He drew Moses' attention by that bush, and then out of that bush, he spoke to him, revealed himself to Moses. And in that revelation, God declared his identity as, I am who I am. Now that was a very important statement. The revelation of and the understanding of God had been obscured by the centuries that the Hebrews had been in slavery in Egypt. Moses inquired, Who am I going to tell them has sent me? And when God demonstrated his judgment against Pharaoh. It was not only so that the Egyptians would know that he was the God over their gods, 
but so that Israel would be able to regain an understanding that their God was the one and only. Remember how deeply they had absorbed, become assimilated in the culture of Egypt with all of its idolatry. When we get to the story of them being at Mount Sinai, Moses on the mountain, when he comes down from the mountain with the tablets that God had carved out and written upon with his own finger, his commandments for Israel, what did Moses find? The people of Israel dancing around these golden calves, these idols, in declaration that these were the gods who brought them up out of Egypt. It reveals to us how deeply they had assimilated the idolatrous understanding and culture within Egypt. And so with these signs and wonders, these plagues that God sends, he is endeavoring to restore in the understanding of Israel a revelation, a comprehension of who he is, and that he is a God unlike any other God that is familiar to them. I am who I am. As the everlasting God, he is infinite and unchanging in his nature. Look at those four adjectives that we have used. Fundamentally, absolutely, infinite, unchanging. In his character, in his nature, God is fundamentally holy, faithful, righteous, good, love. Not just loving, but love. You and I will often say something that we afterwards recognize that we shouldn't have said, and we will say, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I did that. It's not who I am. But in that moment, we lapsed back into our sinful nature. We lapsed out of being under the control of the Holy Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, and doing what we really are not. But God is fundamentally, He is absolutely holy, faithful, righteous, good, love. He will never lapse out of it. He will never be anything other. And He is infinite and unchanging. He is the everlasting God. Therefore, He is infinite in His holiness, infinite in His faithfulness, infinite in His love.
and he is unchanging. He's not a God, as he spoke in Numbers, who changes his mind, who speaks and then does not act. He is always true to his character, and his character is infinite, absolute, and unchanging. In his prayer for his disciples, both the apostles and us, Jesus prayed, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. So he asked the question, how has the Father loved Jesus? Here we have one aspect of how the Father has loved his Son. You loved me before the creation of the world. Just as his nature is eternal, his love is eternal. And when Jesus makes this statement, as the Father has loved me, as he has eternally loved me, as he has loved me before the creation of the world, so have I loved you. And this love that the Father and the Son have shared is the love that they have extended to us. Again, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. The Apostle Paul gives us this understanding in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember we said that the words of Jesus here in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and then his prayer in 17 become the basis for apostolic theology. The apostles enlarging upon what Jesus has said as they teach us what it means to be connected to him, to share in his life as our Savior, our Lord. Paul wrote, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Who is the one he loves? It is his Son. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he love him? He loves him before the creation of the world. And how does he love us? He loves us through Jesus, his Son. Again, how did he love his Son? Before the creation of the world. And so how does he love us? Before the creation of the world. Because he loves us through Jesus. 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so through Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us that we were chosen in him. We were predestined for adoption to sonship. And it was freely given to us. When? Before the creation of the world. Because remember, who God is and what God is is fundamental, absolute, infinite, and unchanging. And so, for those of us who experience his love, it's the same love with which the Father has loved the Son from before the creation of the world. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? The qualities of God's nature which determine the character of his love and its manifestation are consistent. Again, the qualities of God's nature which determine the character of his love and its manifestation or its display is consistent. And as the Father loves the Son, so the Son has loved us and we experience the outcome of that love. Writing to the Romans, the Apostle Paul said, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He had prefaced it by saying, It is hard to find someone who will die for a righteous man, although some may die for a good man, for a friend. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we ever came to a place of faith, before we ever responded to the gospel message, before we were even born, before the creation of the world, God chose us. God loved us. God predestined us. God adopted us. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Not because of what we have done, but because of who they are. Love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So let me ask you a question that we considered earlier. If Jesus had not carried out the Father's will and gone to the cross, would the Father still have loved 
Jesus. Consider this. Although Jesus was, according to Revelation 13, the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world, and the one in whom we were chosen, Jesus declared at the moment of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter came to his defense, Do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? I don't know that I can fully understand what we are seeing here. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his Holy Spirit-inspired prayer for the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, declares that, having been rooted and established in love, we cannot, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, comprehend the immensity of God's love its height, its depth, its length, its width. In other words, God's love cannot be humanly, mentally, intellectually comprehended. It can only be understood spiritually and experientially. Only as the Holy Spirit enables us to experience this unconditional and unfailing love, the same love that the Father has had for the Son and the Son for the Father, because it is their nature, fundamental absolute, infinite, and unchanging. And before Jesus says anything else to his disciples about what it means to remain in his love, experience his love, obey his command to love, he wants them to understand that they are loved by him in the same way that he has been loved by his Father. And so you and I come to understand that just as the Father has loved the Son unconditionally, infinitely, and absolutely from before the creation of the world, so we are loved in Christ whom the Father loves. Isn't it an amazing thought? What God calls us to and what Jesus will command of us 
is not a performance-based love and obedience, but one that is based upon a sense of being so immensely loved. And out of that love, responding. So may you and I, above everything else, come to understand through the Holy Spirit the greatness of God's love for us so that we may obey out of the same heart of love that Jesus obeyed the Father. We have looked at God's character of love, His nature, in a very simple way, not with a lot of depth, especially considering the expansiveness of this subject in Scripture. But what we do see, what we have talked about, I marvel at the love of God. God did not love us because we have merit. God did not love us because there was worth in good. Paul emphasizes in Romans chapter 3, we're worthless. Because of sin, we've lost any value whatsoever. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But He has justified us freely through the redemption of Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is how we see and understand God's love. Father, we will never, even in eternity, be able to comprehend the immensity of your love. For it is infinite. And even in heaven, we will be your redeemed creation. Understanding so much more, seeing so much more, comprehending so much more, but never able to comprehend the infinite love with which you have loved us. The same love with which you have loved the Son. The same love that you and our Lord Jesus Christ have shared for all of your eternal, everlasting to everlasting existence. I pray tonight that you would give me, you would give your people the power of your Holy Spirit to comprehend the immensity of your love. We have been rooted and established in that love through the saving work of Jesus Christ, through your demonstration of love. I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of that love so that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Father, strengthen us in that love. 
Expand that love in us. Fill us with a love that obscures offenses, failures, transgressions, that enables us to love, not out of duty, not out of effort, but out of the fullness of abiding in the love that you have for us. Father, thank you for giving us this exposure in your word this evening. May the word of Christ deeply and pervasively, richly and expansively dwell within us, we pray. In his name, amen. Amen.